government regulations, which were created to protect employees, are actually hurting them. It's regulation after regulation. Until the government understands that they have to create an environment suitable for us to keep growing, we're going to stay in this recession a long time. The federal government has blocked efforts to expand the ride-sharing The owners say the restaurant has succumbed to the crush of government regulation. We have seen an unprecedented explosion of new regulatory $1.8 trillion. That's how much business companies to close. I think there are outdated regulations that need to be changed. There is red tape that needs to be cut. The regulations are... There's a regulation that doesn't make any sense. Why do you keep... Is this really the best we can do? This is Free Lunch, the podcast of the Federalist Society's Regulatory Transparency Project. All expressions of opinion on this podcast are those of the speakers. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another Federalist Society Free Lunch podcast call for the Regulatory Transparency Project. Visit the RTP website at regproject.org, R-E-G-project.org, to subscribe to our newsletter and to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. My name is Devin Westhill. I'm the director of the RTP and the host of the Free Lunch Podcast. This Free Lunch Podcast is about how regulatory policy can erect unnecessary and onerous barriers for entrepreneurs. This topic is well illustrated by the story of Project Bell. Bell is an online service that connects consumers directly with health and beauty professionals for in-home or at-work care in the state of Tennessee. Here to explain why the project, why Project Bell is illustrative of this podcast topic is Armin Lazan and Braden Busek. Armin is the founder and CEO of Bell. Prior to founding Bell, he spent years in business strategy consulting and in private equity and venture capital, where he oversaw a venture portfolio of more than 2,000 companies. Braden is the director of litigation at the Beacon Center of Tennessee. The Beacon Center is a nonprofit, nonpartisan, and independent organization dedicated to providing expert empirical research and timely free market solutions to public policy issues in Tennessee. Braden manages the in-house legal matters and litigation for the Beacon Center. Adding to Braden's extensive litigation experience is his work as an assistant United States attorney in both Nashville and Memphis, and before that, his work as a prosecutor for the state of Tennessee, first as an assistant attorney general, and later as an assistant district attorney. I'm pleased to say that Braden serves on the RTP State and Local Working Group. If you'd like to learn more about Armin, Braden, or the State and Local Working Group, please visit regproject.org. Shortly, I'll turn the floor over to Armin. Before I do, I remind everyone that the Federalist Society takes no position on particular legal or public policy initiatives, and therefore all expressions of opinion on free lunch podcasts are those of our featured speakers. Also, our guests have agreed to take questions after their remarks, so please be prepared with any questions that you might have prior to the start of the Q&A period. Armin and Braden, it's a pleasure to welcome you both to our free lunch podcast. Armin, you have the floor. Thank you, Devin. I really appreciate it. I'm very excited to be here today. Um, so I'm the I'm Armin Lazan, and I'm the founder and CEO of Bell. Uh, and I'm going to first walk us through the history of Bell, why I founded the company, and how we got into the dispute uh, with the board, and, and why the board of cosmetology tried to shut us down. And then I'm going to go into our philosophical position as a company and the public argument that we employed, as well as the strategy that we used to be ultimately successful and the legal argument that that ultimately uh, got us there. I'm going to let Braden go into the specifics. We'll do high-level overview there. And then finally, I'll talk about the outcome and what we're working on now, uh, because there's still some work that we need to do in this industry, in this state, uh, to further deregulate it. Um, so Bell uh, was founded as an on-demand salon and spa. Uh, so think in-home massage 
hair, nails, facials, things like that. Uh, and the concept was actually inspired by my cousin, um, who a few years ago was a new mom and, uh, and a manicurist. So when she became a mother, uh, working for a traditional brick and mortar salon was actually impossible for her. And she explained to me that compensation is really abysmal in this industry. Uh, brick and mortars can take anywhere between 50 to 85% of the revenue that a manicurist generates. And uh, beyond that, scheduling and, and your work hours are actually very, very inflexible. So it just wasn't compatible with her motherhood. So what she ended up doing was house calls uh, with family and friends for cash. So Bell was really founded for people like her um, to be able to use technology uh, to do all the things that she didn't want to do or didn't know what to, how to do them. So scheduling, uh, payment processing, marketing, acquiring customers and, and whatnot, almost like a Uber for, for beauty in a sense. Um, we were there to empower these talented working class folks uh, to enchain themselves to the brick and mortar and become freelancers and entrepreneurs. Um, and, you know, I mentioned that brick and mortars typically take 50, maybe 85% of revenue. We take 25%. So at the end of the day, we're creating an entire new paradigm, an entire new structure where they can double or even triple uh, their pay and their rate of compensation. So we launched about two, two and a half years ago. And maybe about nine months in, I want to guess, uh, post-launch, we were growing every month, doing a great job. And we received a letter from the Board of Cosmetology in the state of Tennessee. It was 11 pages. It was very overwhelming, had lots of technical legal jargon in it, which I didn't really understand at the time. And more or less what it said is that cosmetology services can only be offered in a cosmetology shop. Uh, and this comes from a 1986 law that's actually older than myself. Um, and that we needed to basically, because we were offering these services, we needed to uh, pay a $500 fine and shut down our business, uh, or else we're going to go through a lawsuit with the board. Uh, and the worst part about the letter, and maybe also the funniest, was the very last page was a copy of a complaint uh, and how the board really came to, to hear about this issue and send us this letter, which was from a nail salon owner, a brick and mortar owner. We had actually met her uh, a few months prior and she was friendly to us, but I guess after the fact, uh, she uh, thought it was necessary to email the board. Uh, and in it, she said more or less, you know, it's come to my attention that uh, Bell is offering mobile services, which is against the law. Um, and as a brick and mortar uh, nail salon owner, quote, I find this type of competition highly disturbing, which I think is really the core of, all, of, of this entire issue, which I'll get in, into shortly. So that was really the kickoff of a battle with this state board. Um, and so I'm going to go into our philosophical position and the argument that we use with the press, with politicians, and just for, with ourselves morally, really. Um, so first, uh, we found this regulation to be incredibly insulting to us as consumers. Uh, the board would argue that it's not safe or dangerous to get these services in the home outside of a cosmetology shop. Um, but we don't believe that consumers need to be protected from in-home haircuts or in-home manicures. It just doesn't make sense. It's quite frankly ridiculous. Um, you know, if, if that is unsafe, then we should make it illegal for people to buy nail polish for friends to give others manicures. 
Um, we should outlaw using ovens, knives, candles, things that are probably more dangerous than cosmetology services. Um, it's just simply unnecessary and it limits our choices of consumers. Second, uh, the regulation itself was very irrational and hypocritical. Um, so for instance, there's actually an exception in the regulation that says that if you are ill or infirm, you're allowed to get these services, these cosmetology services, wherever you may be. And that makes a lot of sense. A lot of these people are disadvantaged and can't get services otherwise. But if they are dangerous, if they aren't safe, then we shouldn't be subjecting the most vulnerable amongst us to be getting them. Uh, and then beyond that, too, the board never, ever asked us who our customers were. They just sent us this letter out of the blue. And the truth of the matter is we had about a third of our clientele were elderly or uh, people recovering from surgery or people uh, recovering from car accidents, motorcycle accidents. We were absolutely essential in these people receiving basic human services, and the board simply just did not care about that aspect at all. Um, third, and I think this is really the core of it, is this board and this rule demonstrates an incredibly anti-competitive uh, nature of this industry. Um, we looked into the background of each board member uh, and I think there are about 10 of them. And out of the 10, nine or more, all but one, uh, owned a brick and mortar salon or owned multiple brick and mortar salons. Uh, and there are 51,000 cosmetologists in the state of Tennessee. And I think the rate of cosmetologists that own their own shop is like 15% or 20%, something around there. So at the end of the day, you have a completely inverted board of owners lording over a, uh, a, a massive workforce uh, of workers. Um, and at the end of the day, this is a massive, massive conflict of interest. Um, the, these owners, this board and how it's evolved over the decades here, they want the workers to stay where they are. They don't want them to compete. They don't want them to freelance. They don't want them, them to be entrepreneurs. They live paycheck to paycheck. They make not much more than minimum wage sometimes. Uh, and they, there's no way they can open up their own brick and mortar, which can cost tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, to really have their own shop. Um, our business represents an existential threat to who they are because they don't really need any capital, barely any capital, to set up their own mobile shop. So they don't, they don't want this type of competition. And I think that's why in the letter, um, we saw that nail salon owner complain and say this type of competition is highly disturbing. It's really infused into this very backwards culture of cosmetology owners in this board of, board of cosmetology. Uh, and then the last thing I'll say on this topic, too, is that the board is appointed by uh, the governor. And I think that's probably the case in many states. And regardless of party affiliation, at the end of the day, the folks who get appointed to these boards are the ones who are politically well-connected uh, and wealthy. And so that's, again, why there's this stark, stark contrast between the industry and who's on these boards. Uh, and then our fourth argument, and I think this is really, really important, is that this law discriminates against female entrepreneurs. Uh, I want to say the vast majority of the cosmetologists we work with are, are women. And we looked back at the General Assembly in 1986, 90%, more than 90% of the General Assembly was men at the time. And I can tell you as a man myself, I don't know this industry as well as my female counterparts. Uh, they didn't really have a business in regulating this industry. And my mother at the time brought up a great point. Um, my parents live in Florida 
And she said, she was doing research and she told me that, you know, in, in Florida, there's no professional licensure to be a, a landscaper uh, down there. And that's a male dominated industry. And they're using heavy machinery, they're using fertilizer, they're using chemicals. And you could argue that it's factors more dangerous than simple cosmetology. So there's just a huge disparity between the requirements between genders here. And it was just simply, uh, simply unfair. So that argument in totality is how we spoke about the issue. It's what we truly believed in our hearts. And I think that was a really, really big piece of us being successful is, is articulating that. Um, in terms of our strategy and beyond just that argument, um, first we got the right team together. So my first phone call once I got the letter was to uh, Braden at the Beacon Center. Um, and he was incredibly helpful. And he brought on um, into our tent uh, Daniel Horwitz, who is a local attorney, and he has a passion for these types of regulatory issues. And he, in many ways, uh, quarterbacked uh, the strategy with us in the Beacon Center. And um, to be, so after we got the team together, uh, the next big thing that we did is we built relationships with state politicians, House reps, senators, uh, and we just explained the issue to them. Uh, we, the topic is common sense. It's attractive, it's bipartisan, it makes sense to everyone. Um, and at the end of the day, everyone really agreed with us. We didn't get any pushback. And we asked folks to just simply write letters uh, to the Board of Cosmetology, uh, voicing their concern and their disappointment over this. Um, and then we, uh, third, we uh, did a PR blitz. So we reached out to every publication uh, that we could imagine. Uh, Forbes wrote us up, the local newspapers, the Tennessean National Business Journal, uh, libertarian publications that are sympathetic to these issues, uh, any group. And I probably gave a dozen different interviews um, during this time period. And then finally, tactically, what we did is we made sure that these letters, that these articles were all timed uh, within two weeks leading up to our hearing date with the Board of Cosmetology. Um, so in essence, that created a really, really powerful public outcry and public scrutiny. And at the end of the day, um, th that really, really, really helped us. In terms of the legal argument that we use, I'm going to let Braden dive into the technical aspects of that. But the marquee, and we use lots of arguments, uh, but the marquee reason that I think uh, was helpful is the fact that the Board of Cosmetology has jurisdiction over cosmetologists and cosmetology shops. We're neither of those. We're, we're a software company. We're a technology company. So we're outside of their jurisdiction. It's like us being a phone book and just listing a cosmetologist and then us being in trouble for something unrelated um, to, to what the cosmetologist is doing. At the, and that's kind of a similar argument that Uber and Lyft have used as well. So in terms of the outcome, all of us together, um, at the end of the day with our argument, legal argument, the public scrutiny, um, the board backed down. And they said that, you know, we are indeed outside of their jurisdiction and we're free to operate. Uh, what this meant in reality is that Bell was granted really a de facto monopoly on mobile services in the state. So a cosmetologist actually can't freelance uh, mobily by themselves. They need to work through us or another software provider. And we think that is manifestly unfair, completely unfair. So what we've been working on now is actually working with our same allies during the board fight uh, to carry a bill 
um, through the General Assembly to very cleanly make mobile services um, legal for everyone so that cosmetologists or even cosmetology shops can offer these services wherever they want. Um, we've passed the Senate unanimously here. We've passed, uh, I think, several subcommittees in the House unanimously so far. I think we're going to pass the House unanimously as well. Uh, and we know that the governor's office is, is on board with this too. So I think we're really well poised um, to create good, lasting, permanent change here and, and really liberate these 51,000 cosmetologists in the state. Um, and I think I'll just conclude quickly by saying that, you know, the point of this company and our team and, and this fight really was to give these working folks um, the ability and the freedom to follow the American dream, to better themselves, to improve their living, to make better compensation, to make something that's their own. And on top of that, um, to allow consumers uh, the diversity of choices that they, that they really deserve um, as well. And I think that is uh, that's something that we're all passionate about and really, really pleased to be able to have this opportunity to to fight for it here in the state in a small way, at least. So I'll uh, stop there and I'm happy for Braden to pick it up. Hi, this is uh, Braden Busek from the Beacon Center of Tennessee. Uh, you know, when I heard Armin's story and as I reflect on it, it always gives me pause because I think about the classic association about Americanism um, and entrepreneurship. You know, it's supposed to be this indelible part of our character. Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson is attributed as having said, build a better mousetrap and the world will beat a path to your door. Um, the American love of entrepreneurship is just legendary. Everybody's noticed it since the founding. But uh, what we increasingly see is that if you want to not just build a better mousetrap, but what you want to do is fundamentally rethink the way in which you catch a mouse, the people who wind up beating a path to your door are the people who want to shut you down. Um, and we've seen example after example of hostility towards innovation of the magnitude of Armin's. Of course, the stories about Uber and Airbnb are uh, well, well known to everybody on this call. Um, I hope everybody listened to uh, the, the broadcast about Flight Now that um, Devin and the guys at RTP put on uh, not long ago because it's the same story. The common denominator among them all is that you're talking about innovation that is so profoundly disruptive to an existing market status quo that uh, the entrenched service providers simply can't compete. And so what they do is they're forced to resort to enlisting government as a backstop to artificially maintain its competitiveness. Um, to put it in really blunt terms, uh, sharing, plat sharing economy platforms wind up cutting out the middleman because they perfectly connect consumers with a provider. Um, and again, you can reflect on example after example of this. Alibaba has no inventory. Airbnb has no hotel. Uh, and in much the same way, Armin's business, Project Bell, um, is not a cosmetology shop, but it provides cosmetology services. And obviously, if you're one of the people uh, who's putting it putting these services up using the uh, existing business model, it's tremendously difficult to, uh, to find a way to compete with innovation of this magnitude. And Armin's described uh, ably exactly what Project Bell is and what it did and the problem. But the problem, in brief, was that Project Bell made it possible for cosmetologists to deliver cosmetology services directly to the consumers in the comfort of that person's own home. In other words, there was no shop. And that's a problem because it cuts out brick and mortar, which is a significant overhead expense. 
and that's precisely what happened to Armin. He mentioned it briefly, but I think it, it warrants pointing out a second time. The Tennessee Cosmetology Board opened up a disciplinary action against Project Bell for operating an unlicensed shop, and we know exactly why, because it sent Armand a notice of the uh, complaint, and it had the actual complaint itself, and it specifically said that it found his type of competition, and that's in quotes, um, highly disturbing. Um, and of course, you know, I'm sure it did find it disturbing, uh, you know, in much the same way that whalers, I'm sure, found Thomas, and that Thomas Edison's light bulb disturbing. Armin's innovation profoundly disrupted uh, their entire industry and threatened to obsolete it altogether. So the the most immediate legal hurdle and legal challenge that Armin had um, is that this presents a case of what we refer to as regulatory mismatch. That is the tendency of government to shoehorn old 20th century regulations um, onto new technologies for whom those regulations make a poor fit and oftentimes uh, weren't even envisioned um, as applying to these sorts of technologies. And the reason why uh, Project Bell is such a good example is because trying to characterize it as operating an unlicensed shop is almost laughable. The whole point of Project Bell's business model is to not have a shop. And if you think about really the nuts and bolts of all Project Bell does is it shares information. That is, it connects two bits of information, i.e. a consumer who wants this service with a uh, professional who provides that service and then it dictates the terms of that service. But it's no more of a shop, really, than the Yellow Pages would have been if they advertised a particular business. And these issues are just bound to occur over and over again because technology and sharing platforms um, are providing a means to go around the regulatory state altogether. And if you think about it again, you know, the current notion of the regulatory state as we currently envision it is a uniquely 20th century phenomenon. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, uh, it, as the economy became more complex, um, you had these sorts of industries that consumers could just not possibly hope um, to really understand and work out in uh, the normal course of a free market economy. At least that's the argument. And to give an example, if you were to say, okay, now we have drug manufacturers providing really complex drugs, um, you can say, let the market sort it out, but of course a consumer would have no way of knowing until they get very, very sick whether or not um, this is a scam or an actual health product, so therefore you need the government to intercede in the form of the FDA to just test a drug and say it's safe to go on market. But really, we no longer uh, have these sorts of informational asymmetries. Um, technology threatens to obsolete the regulatory state itself. I mean, if you, if you think about it, um, you know more about an Uber that you get into than a cab with a taxicab medallion. Um, I ask people to consider this example all the time, but are you more likely before going to a restaurant to read its Yelp review or to check uh, the health score that has been provided to it by a health code inspector? So really, you know, the way that these businesses are going um, really represents a return to the historic norms, and it may well be the case that we look back on the regulatory state as something of a 20th century artifact but it's certainly on a collision course with technology. Um, the, the, the final chapter to all of this 
and that I ask uh, everyone to think about are the constitutional implications of what happened to Armand and his business. Um, we should not think of this as merely bad policy um, requiring Armin to go and ask the regulatory boards and lawmakers to just change. Uh, I point out that Armin's um, issue goes straight to what I call the soft underbelly of democracy. Now, most of the general public would be against what happened to Project Bell. A few people with vested economic interest would be for it. And so what you have in some is a narrow group of highly interested and politically connected interests clashing with a relatively diffuse and disinterested broad group with little political access. And the way that tends to work out is that the group with the narrow high-intensity interest prevails um, in a democratic system. It's really the familiar story of why we continue to have mohair subsidies, what began as a World War II subsidy to make sure we had enough wool to make uniforms in a two-front war, became embedded in the law, and now those subsidies continue to exist because you have a very narrow, discrete group of mohair producers who are highly interested um, in maintaining uh, their subsidy. And even though the general public thinks this is stupid and wants to do away with it, um, the democratic process is not well suited to ironing um, that problem out. So we need to ask in questions like Armin's or the Ubers or the Flight Nows, is this merely a political question? We should always remember that the Constitution is premised on the idea that democracy will, on occasion, misfire. And the question is, what happens when it does? In Federalist 78, uh, Hamilton wrote specifically about the purposes of the courts, and he said it was to protect against, and I'm quoting here, you know, the ill humors which the arts of designing men will sometimes disseminate among the people themselves, and which have a tendency in the meantime to occasion dangerous innovations in the government and serious oppression of the minor party in the community. And Project Bell is but one example of what we have seen of these ill humors and the oppression visited against Armin being uh, an example of the serious oppression in the minor party in the community. And the majoritarian ill humors envisioned by the founders was not merely confined to limitations on unpopular speech or unpopular religions. The founders were highly concerned over the oppression that would come from what they referred to as a monopoly, or a government-sponsored privilege to engage in certain trades. Um, this is oftentimes lost in a lot of our discussions about uh, the founding era, but if you actually go look through the primary sources of the founders, the, there's every bit of an indication that they were just as concerned about monopolies as they were threats to free speech. The British experience with monopolies was an abuse that long concerned English scholars long before there was an America. Uh, indeed, some of the very first cases of Parliament placing limitations on the Crown were examples of uh, royal monopolies. In fact, it was such a concern that leading anti-federalists at the time of the founding were highly desirous of seeing a prohibition against monopolies, making it into the very Bill of Rights itself. Um, and they were just as concerned about governmental-sponsored monopolies as they were anything. I mean, Adam Smith, even in The Wealth of Nations, lamented what he called, quote, the wretched spirit of monopolies, even when he praised the invisible hand. Jefferson, for example, listed his fear of monopolies as among his chief concerns in a proposed constitution, and he insisted on a prohibition against them being contained in a Bill of Rights. 
in a letter to Madison, he proposed that a prohibition against monopolies, reading as follows, be included in the Bill of Rights. Monopolies may be allowed to persons for their own productions in literature and their own inventions in the arts for a term not exceeding years, but for no longer term and for no other purpose. So in other words, uh, Jefferson thought that the only possible purpose of a, quote, monopoly would be something like a trademark or intellectual property, something like that, and it would only be for a short period of time and for no other purpose. But the failure of a prohibition on monopolies to make it into the Bill of Rights was listed by Jefferson as one of the major shortcomings of the Bill of Rights um, until the day of his death. Interestingly, as a parenthetical, I will point out that many states, uh, I think about six, have anti-monopolies provisions contained in their state constitution's Bill of Rights. Tennessee's is actually one of them, um, and it interestingly reads that uh, monopolies are contrary to the genius of a free state and shall be prohibited. So by its very terms, it didn't even contain the qualifications um, for trademark and intellectual property that uh, Jefferson would have had in his. Uh, and there wasn't really any real disagreement between um, the various factions about the dangers of monopolies or their tendency to violate the inherent freedoms of the people. Madison, who was against uh, an, a prohibition against monopolies being in the Bill of Rights, called monopolies, quote, among the greatest nuisances in government. But the reason why Madison opposed putting them in the Bill of Rights was because uh, he thought that they were a problem peculiar to um, a monarchy. In other words, he thought a uh, a monarchy would uh, innovate and oppress the um, large mass of the people by privileging a few. And he, although he was so naive about the dangers presented by a democracy, said that the, the dangerous temptation of democracies would be that you would privilege the very many at the expense of the few. Um, now, of course, uh, Madison um, never envisioned the rise of an unaccountable fourth branch which produces things like the Tennessee Cosmetology Board, which writes for itself its own laws, um, and they're thus removed from the natural dynamics at work in a democracy. And, of course, the very purpose of um, a fourth branch of government was, by design, to take uh, these sorts of lawmaking functions out of the normal um, democratic process. So I'll close my part by saying um, something that has never before been uttered on a Federalist Society uh, Federal Society property, but James Madison had it wrong, and he was far too optimistic. Hey, now, <laughs> that that that's great, Braden, and and, and wonderful uh, presentation, uh, Armand, as well. Um, let's go to audience questions now. In a moment, everyone on the call is going to hear a prompt indicating that the floor mode's been turned on. After that, to request the floor, enter star and then the pound button. Okay, it looks like our floor request mode is having a hiccup. Let's see if we can get this going. While I'm working on this, uh, Armand uh, or Brayden, did you have any other remarks, uh, any reaction to what you heard from the other day? I think one thing that I constantly bring up with folks, and I think Brayden was touching on this, that regulations like these and boards like these, they're, they're antiquated. Uh, they don't think about the future. They don't think about innovation. And at the end of the day, uh, they limit human creativity and they limit human association. And I think that's that's something that we've seen time and time again. 
um, and especially over the last decade, and I think that's something we're going to see over the next decade as well. One question that I had for you, Armand, um, uh, as, as we uh, work on getting the full request mode uh, turned on, is, I mean, I, I really like your focus on, you know, the consumers, uh, folks who can't get the services that Bell would provide uh, otherwise. Uh, but one of the things that I've done, and, and I, I mentioned, or I, I, I think um, – uh, Braden for mentioning is I've interviewed quite a few entrepreneurs um, who, have, who have run into problems like uh, Alonki Shard and Matt Volska of Flight Now, um, and, and, and I, I always want to know how does it feel being the entrepreneur that is that is stifled, that is that is stepped on or or pushed around um, as the little guy. I mean, how, how how does this make you feel? I mean, do you want to? Uh, start another business? Do you, do you want to continue to be an entrepreneur? Um, how, how has this affected you? Uh, that's a great question. I think um, it's terrifying. You risk so much uh, by starting a new venture. People constantly say that entrepreneurs are crazy for starting a new business. You really are taking a, a bet on the impossible. And when you get a 12 or 11 page, uh, when you Okay. If you didn't know, floor request <laughs> mode has been initiated. Um, again, we apologize for the, uh, for the problem with the software there. But uh, if you do want to ask a question. <laughs> I'm hoping that's it. Do, do we still have you, Armand and, and Braden? Yeah, I'm, I'm still here. I'm still here, but I'm getting the best as well. Okay. Let's let's see if we can uh let's see if we can move along here. I'm having uh, quite a bit of problem here on the back end as you can tell. Um Armand, you were cut off uh by our four re four request mode prompt. Um uh, did you want to finish your your statement about how you feel as an entrepreneur? Armand, are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Oh, great. I think we just I think it stopped. Yeah, can you hear me? You, yes, I can hear you. Um, as I was mentioning, you were cut off by by our prompting. Um, did you want to finish uh, your your statement sure. about the? Okay. Yeah. So um, you know, it's really terrifying. You you put so much into a business and starting uh, a new venture. It's very risky, and you know, receiving uh, an eleven page document that tells you to shut down uh, into something that you spent you know years working on. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not helpful. Um, but, you know, I think I'm in a lucky position where I it just am naturally very passionate about this issue. The reason I started the business was to empower um, cosmetologists. So when I saw the exact opposite manifesting itself, uh, it actually only made me even more excited and more confident and we were on the right path. So it was really a, a, a bittersweet. Uh, moment, if you can believe that. Um, but I can imagine for a vast amount of people, it's terrifying, it's destructive, um, and it just slows slows progress down. And uh, Devin, like you, you know, I, I wind up talking to a lot of entrepreneurs too who are, are affected by um, 
various regulatory and legal measures. And I can say that Armin's reaction is actually quite unusual. You know, the vast majority of entrepreneurs, when they're confronted by um, these sorts of abuses, more or less um, decide that they just have to take it. Um, a lot of times that's just a rational calculus based on the relative uh, costs um, of fighting it. But uh, the spirit in which Armin engaged this is um, uh, unfortunately are too, all too unusual. You know, and another thing I'll say is we learned when this happened to us that this has been going on for decades. The, the board would send out this letter, they copy and paste it, and if they heard of an individual cosmetologist freelancing and doing their own thing, a nail salon owner or any type of brick-and-mortar owner would report them, and the board would immediately just send this letter out. And to Braden's point, they would immediately become terrified and shut down. Um, you know, again, folks in this world, in this industry, paycheck to paycheck, they can't afford to take this risk. And even the $500 fine is a massive devastation uh, to an individual worker. So it's, um, yeah, it, 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 hopefully that adds more color into what individuals go through too, even if they're just freelancing. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and, and thanks for your responses. I'm still having trouble with the software here, so we may not be able to get to Q&A today, um, unfortunately. But uh, I do have some questions myself, and, and, and please uh, please humor me, and, and hopefully our audience will, will think the, the, the questions are, are worth being answered. Um, I guess this one maybe goes to Braden. Um, Braden, after North Carolina Dental, uh, a case I'm sure you're, you, you know and, and others on the call will know, but uh, maybe require some uh, some explanation. But after North Carolina Dental, why not advance Sherman Act claims in litigation in these contexts? So uh, that's a that's a good question, and trust me, um, I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of intellectual energy among people in my my space about um, the possibility of bringing in any trust claim. For those who don't know, uh, the North Carolina Dental case was one that made it up to the U.S. Supreme Court and held that. Uh, regulatory boards that are primarily composed of market participants um, who engage in any competitive actions and are not actively supervised are not do not enjoy governmental immunity. They're essentially acting as private actors. And that opens up the possibility that uh, boards, theoretically like the cosmetology board, could be sued under a theory of antitrust, um, opening themselves up to individual consequences. So uh, I, I would not foreclose the possibility of bringing an antitrust action. Um, there, are, there are several challenges that go with it. Probably the first and foremost would be that um, you'd have to establish, number one, that the boards are not actively supervised and that these are uh, regulatory actions and not legal ones. Um, that presents an initial threshold determination that um, – that injects an air of uh, questionability in the whole thing. Um, I've also talked about it a little bit with uh, private bar members, and one of the things that, that they say is unfortunate, uh, unfortunate limitation to the North Carolina dental decision is that the economics of it still don't really work from a private firm perspective. Um, the possibility of recoupment of damages, even treble damages, isn't sufficient to uh, invest the uh, resources um, for a private firm to uh, to go after these things. There's also um, a related issue. Many uh, many state 
many states, Tennessee included, in the wake of North Carolina Dental, passed laws that were designed to get their antitrust immunity back without actually making these boards any more competitive. And Tennessee passed one such law uh, last year um, that is a uh, that was specifically invest a layer of active supervision without mandating that it be competitive. That may or may not be sufficient to get the antitrust immunity back, but it makes the question um, far more murky. Incidentally, I think there is um, coincidentally a measure uh, in Senate Judiciary um, at the federal level that's uh, sponsored by Mike Lee that's designed to address that and essentially tell these um, states that if you want your antitrust immunity back, you either have to give way to a uh, judicial remedy so that that people like Armand can come to court, or your active supervision has to be uh, pro-market. But the one thing that would not allow for is what Tennessee and any number of states have done, which is allow for active supervision that is still anti-competitive. Thanks, Braden. Um, what I'm going to do, I think, is uh, end, end our conference call um, after an announcement and, and perhaps after any final remarks that uh, Armand and Braden you might have, since we're just not going to be able to get the uh, get the program here up and running for Q&A. Uh, so let me make this announcement, and, and maybe during that time, uh, Armand and Braden, you can be thinking about what final remarks you might have, uh, if any. Uh, tomorrow, I promise, <laughs> Our teleform system will be back up and running, um, and we'll have a 12 o'clock noon uh, free lunch teleform call that will discuss a recent regulatory reform action undertaken by the Department of the Interior uh, with counselor to the Deputy Secretary, Gary Lokowski. Specifically, Gary will discuss a recent move to permanently withdraw and replace a novel 2017 interpretation of the 1918 Migratory Bird Treaty Act. That new interpretation, which took effect 10 days prior to President Obama leaving office, some argued, gave government lawyers the unfettered ability to target for prosecution any disfavored industry or individual for accidental bird deaths that resulted from otherwise lawful uh, activity. So, promise our software will be up and running tomorrow uh, for that teleforum at 12 o'clock noon. I uh, hope that you'll, you'll join us then. Uh, Braden, um, if you have any final remarks, would you like to uh, go ahead of our mend here? No, um, I thank uh, you for the platform and for the time. Um, I ask everyone to uh, be attentive to these issues um, and think of them as uh, a combination of both bad policy but also the sorts of uh, abuses of democracy that uh, the Constitution was designed to address. Great. Armin, do you have any final thoughts? You know, through my experience here, I've just become more and more convinced that these professional licensure boards uh, are really outdated. They're counterproductive, as we've mentioned. At the end of the day, they hurt consumers, they disadvantage workers, and um, you know I think uh, I think there's a lot of good stories happening of people fighting these things back, and I think the trends are in our favor. And I'm very happy to talk to anyone who needs help, um, and uh, and just shedding more light on our strategy too, because I think it was a blueprint that ended up working out pretty nicely for ourselves. Great, um, thanks for those final remarks. But wouldn't you know it, our Q and A board has now popped back up. Would, do you guys want to take any questions? Sure, I can. I'm, I'm available. We still have some time. Sorry, this is a uh, interesting, uh, interesting call, but we'll get it all worked out on our podcast later. Um, caller, when we get to your call, or we get to your, uh, we get to you, you're going to hear uh, uh, a prompt, and you can ask your question. Just one second. Hi, uh, Chris Garvey here. I'm calling from New York, uh, and uh, I 
watched as an entire uh, industry of uh, house inspectors, home inspectors, was controlled by licensing authorities. Uh, it was a, a solution with no problem because you you didn't become a, a home inspector unless you knew what you were doing because the risks of evaluating a home as uh, not having any market uh, problems, uh, falling down walls, rotting roof, things like that, uh, were so huge that nobody would take on that risk unless he knew what he was doing. So you just didn't have these people being sued Sometimes you'd get a call from a lawyer saying, you didn't tell my client about such and such, and the, the inspector would pull out his report and he'd say, look, at page six, we did tell you about that. Um, but somehow the state of New York uh, decided that uh, they should regulate this. And, of course, New York regulates everything that's not nailed down. And uh, and so uh, there was no there was no stopping it. The, the legislature said, yeah, this is a good idea, and now we have this whole licensing thing. Arguably, the people who get into it after taking a, a, a course in this are less competent than the people who got into it in the unregulated uh, milieu. Um, just, uh, I have no specific question, but just uh, you might care to comment on that. Thanks for sticking with us, Chris. Um, Braden, Armand? Yeah, I think a lot of these unnecessary licensing requirements create this false sense of security. Uh, you know, I started my professional career in Boston, and I'd constantly have to take taxis, traditional taxis, from the office uh, to home. And, you know, they, they boxed competition out. Um, and these taxis were terrible. They'd cheat us out of money. They would, it was unbelievable the routes they would take, drive up the fares. And at the end of the day, it just it was so counterproductive that when Uber and Lyft came out, everyone instantly switched over and it created a, a revolution in that city and others. And I think the same thing with cosmetology. You know, people have this false sense of security that um, you have a license, you're good. That's not the case at all. Um, the powerful thing with technology is the two-way review system. It keeps both sides transparent and accountable, knowing that they, they have to behave and provide quality service. It's ultimate transparency, and that's the key to um, having an open and free market as well as transparency. So whenever we have an appointment, uh, we always ask the client to leave a review. And then and, and, and the cosmetologist, they also leave a review of the client as well so that other cosmetologists know what they're getting themselves into. That is far more powerful than any type of convoluted, expensive, backwards licensing system. So um, in that sense, I, you know, I, I definitely agree with you. Thanks, Ornman. Braden, did you have any thoughts on this? No, I agree. I absolutely agree. Um, I, I, I just think that uh, it is very tough um, once these legislation legislators get going down this road um, for them to reverse course. I, you know, I do, I do see the public dialogue sort of moving this way, and I'm grateful to, to organizations like the Federalist Society for starting to move in this space. But, I mean, you know, uh, you can just look at, like, what Oregon did um, – on the pumping gas measure, you know, to see really how challenging this is. I mean, Oregon pa passed a law ostensibly to give consumers freedom to pump their own gas. Um, and if you actually look at the law, you know, it's still riddled with a million exceptions. Um, and it came accompanied with this long statement about uh, the need to protect 
the public from class one flammable liquids, in, in other words, gasoline. Um, and so you could just see how easily legislators, once they get started, can be seduced by these uh, laws that help narrow interest groups but are ostensibly marketed as needing to protect the public. And it, it, you have to have a dialogue with them to essentially say, yeah, we, we're going to allow some risk of the public. You know, theoretically, pumping gas entails a small measure of risk, much as do cosmetology services. But you know, unless you want every aspect of American life governed by a law, we, you, you've got to you've got to accept that. Um, and lawmakers, it's just it, it's always a challenge to sell them on we're going to allow for for some kind of risk in the public realm. Well, here in New York, we have uh, when. Uh, pump your own gas stations were introduced, they said, oh, yeah, you can pump your own gas, but you can't use the little clips that enable you to step away from your gas pump. So you have to stand there being uh, um, fumigated by the gasoline while you're, while you're pumping it and holding it in, in your hand. Uh, that's just the way they deal with innovation in New York. Yeah, and I mean, you know, you can you can spend a whole day talking about all of the things that are more dangerous than regulated activity X that are allowed that we all take for granted. I mean, you know, we don't require chefs to be licensed. Um, the idea is laughable, but of course, food service safety is far more of a live issue than um, cosmetology products. And in Tennessee, to cut hair, you've got to have 1,500 hours of um, educational training and pass state-mandated exams. Oh, I dare say that cutting someone's hair is far less risky than preparing food. Well, here in New York, you can't prepare food uh, in an open uh, uh, area without a uh, without a license, and most people don't bother to get it. Uh, yeah. they, they just don't do that that in New York, and here on Long Island, particularly where the Suffolk uh, Board of Health uh, controls everything that people serve in the open air, and make it prohibitively expensive. And if you do comply with all their rules, they come in and figure out one that you haven't complied with. Um, yeah, it, it's interesting that the uh, that the administrative state that might have been protected against by a constitutional amendment against such monopolies uh, would probably not have applied to the states, and so the states are just as as capable of having these administrative state abuses as the federal government is. Yeah, I, I, I think at least with concerns professional boards, the states have shown themselves to be more tempted um, by that notion than the federal authorities. Uh, but um, as I mentioned in, in my presentation, uh, several states have anti-monopolies provisions, um, and I I think that the, there's a really strong case that those are designed to aim at things like professional licenses for um, common occupations. Thanks again, Chris, for your follow-up and for, for sticking with us through our technical difficulties. Um, I'm going to make one final call for any questions. Um, if you do have a question, you can press star and then the pound button on your telephone keypad and we'll get to your question. Uh, if not, uh, I will take the liberty of asking the last question here. Uh, I, I think both Ar uh, Armand and Braden uh, can weigh in on this, but uh, seeing no other questions, I'll, I'll go ahead. Um, I understand that the Tennessee legislature is about to release a licensing report mandated by the Right to Earn a Living Act, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Does that play into or or is, is, does it affect Bell at all? 
Well, uh, so no, not not in a in a strict sense. Um, the Right to Earn a Living Act was very concerned with this problem, um, and it's slated to release legislative uh, findings about um, the breakdown of the licensure requirements uh, for everything regulated by the Department of Commerce and Insurance. That would include Bell, but I, it, it's not going to concern itself with specific applications like this. It's more going to have to do with comparing hours requirements for this this profession versus others. Um, however, the spirit of the act itself um, is very much in keeping with the problems faced by Armand. Uh, and the legislative findings uh, that were attached to the bill were themselves fascinating, where it talked about um, the growth of this problem, the fact that this is a fundamental civil right, um, and uh, the need to find solutions um, that allow for people to work but protect public safety by using uh, the least restrictive means. And so that tailoring language that's included in there is, I would submit, a big positive development in the law um, that ought to be incorporated into all licensing regimes. Simply put, if there's a less onerous way to protect public safety than licensure, um, that ought to be uh, what we resort to. Licensure ought to be a last resort, not a first impulse. Well, thanks for clearing that up, Braden. And uh, I, everyone on the call can expect that the Regulatory Transparency Project will do something uh, on that Tennessee report. Uh, there's also one out of Kentucky and some things going on um, uh, in the Midwest as well uh, regarding licensure. Um, any last thoughts before we, we, we end the call, Armand? No, I, I just thank you very much for letting us share a story, and I, I hope it was helpful. Great. Wonderful. Braden? No, thank you again. Um, this is Braden Busek from the Beacon Center. Well, on behalf of the Federal Society's Regulatory Transparency Project, I want to thank our audience for sticking with us through all the technical issues um, and also uh, hope that you'll join us tomorrow for our teleforum at 12 o'clock noon uh, with Deputy to the uh, or Counselor to the Deputy Secretary, Gary Lawkowski. Um, thanks again, Armand and Braden, for joining Free Lunch Podcast today. Until tomorrow, so long. On behalf of the Federalist Society's Regulatory Transparency Project, thanks for tuning in to Free Lunch. As always, you can subscribe on iTunes and Google Play to get new episodes of Free Lunch when they're published. Also, visit our website at regproject.org. That's R-E-G project.org. There, we regularly upload content in addition to our podcasts, such as short videos and papers. And you can join the discussion by sharing your story of how regulation has personally affected you. Until next time, remember, there's no such thing as a free lunch. This has been a FedSoc audio production. 